You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Church in Huntsville, Ontario. Harvest Church is a community that exists to love God, love people, and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. For more information about our church, visit us online at myharvestchurch.ca. We're tracking through the book of John, and we're, we're here in John chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 13 of John chapter 2. And we're tracking through what, what John's whole purpose, he's trying to accomplish a purpose as an eyewitness account of Jesus. And his purpose in John chapter 20, verse 31, is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he is God the Son. And he says this, and that you would have life in his name. That's his whole purpose. And so, so last week we, we saw Jesus, we, we, were, we were at a party, this week we're going to be in a fight, all right, and for some of you are like, that sounds like Friday nights for me, right? So, but as we track through what's going on here, look at John chapter 2, we're going to see the fight that happens here, starting in verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he'd said, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, and Jesus, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about, he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So what do we see here? Jesus leaves this wedding party at Cana. He goes to Capernaum for a few days. And then it says here, he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, if you're looking at a map, you're like, wait a minute. Isn't, he, isn't Cana up here and, and Capernaum up here? Wouldn't he be going down to Jerusalem? When it says in the scriptures that they go up to Jerusalem, it's about topography. Because Jerusalem was set on a hill. So when they went to Jerusalem, they always talked about, we're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus and a few of his disciples, they roll into Jerusalem during Passover. Now, the population of Jerusalem, it's, it's hard to nail it down specifically at Jesus' time what the population would have been. It's anywhere between 100 and 200,000 people would occupy, live in Jerusalem. But during Passover, it would be over a million, some say up to 2 million people flooding the city for this celebration. Jews from all over Judea would come into the city for this, this massive celebration. So think about like, this is, this is Canada Day, Christmas, Thanksgiving, and my birthday all rolled into one. Like people want to be there, right? What they're celebrating is they're remembering the Passover of the Exodus. We've talked about this before, but just to recap, right? This is where the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. And God tells Moses, go, go to Pharaoh and tell him, hey, let my people go that they may go out into the wilderness to worship me. 
And Pharaoh's like, yeah, no, no, I'm not going to do that. These people are mine. You're staying in bondage. So God sends these plagues. And each plague is this demonstration of God's power over these puny, fake Egyptian gods. And then the, the last plague is this angel of death that's going to come to Egypt and take the life of every firstborn. But God says this, he says, take, take a spotless, perfect lamb, kill that lamb, put its blood on the doorposts, and whoever has the blood of the lamb over them, the angel of death will pass over you. So, so you can imagine a, a Hebrew dad saying to his firstborn son, hey, hey, go get fluffy. We're going to shed his blood and put on the doorposts. And I can imagine the son saying, what? What's that lamb ever done? Why would he deserve to die? And the dad's like, listen, it's either you or the lamb. And the son's like, come here, Fluffy, come on. <laughs> Let's do this. You are saved from sin is what this was saying. The Passover was saying, you're saved from sin and judgment, not based on anything you've done. It is all grace by grace alone. And you put your trust in this lamb, in, in God's plan of redemption. So it's gonna be through faith. And then every Passover celebrated for the 1,500 years from the first Passover up until you see Jesus here coming into Jerusalem is this reminder that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the one who is innocent, who's died on your behalf. All this time remembering the lamb given up for them, year after year, and now, and now the lamb of God arrives. Jesus comes into the temple, and what's he see? It says in verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So, so what happened is Passover had become big business, right? I mean, can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine if we let Christmas become that? Okay, you can imagine it, right? All right? So, so, so now we know the end of the story here. If you've been in church, you, you know what Jesus is going to do. We just read the passage. And so we can read this and we hear the scene that he comes up upon and we can think, man, these guys are obviously doing something very wrong. They shouldn't be selling sacrifices. But, but in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God actually said, if you're coming from a long way off, Sell your offering at home, bring the money from that sale and buy an offering at the temple in Jerusalem when you arrive. I don't know if you ever owned a sheep or a goat or an ox or pigeons, but I can imagine they probably don't travel real well over hundreds of miles, right? And, and it says in that same passage in Deuteronomy that when you arrive, you're, you're to come and you're to celebrate. You're to celebrate the Passover. It's supposed to be a party. Just a quick side note, when, when we come to gather at church here, we are celebrating. We're, we're celebrating God's grace. I don't know about you, but man, I remember growing up as a kid in church and looking around and thinking, this is not a celebration. Like some of these people were baptized in lemon juice, man. It does not look like a happy crowd. You're like, oh, in my heart, I have the joy of the Lord. Send a missionary from your heart to your face, like so that there's joy coming out, Right? The, the word hallelujah, hallel, it means this. It literally means to, to raise your hands in excitement. It's, it's an exuberant of praise. Yah means the Lord. So, so to praise the Lord, that there's, there's a party of people who know they've been saved. And that's why we sing with our, with our voices loud, our, our hearts engaged, our hands raised. So if God set it up for you to come into the Passover to be able to buy your sacrifice, to be able to go into this party of celebration, 
What's up with Jesus' response then? Look at verse 15 and 16. What made him so angry? It says, in making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make it a marketplace, is what he's saying. I mean, he sits down and literally takes time. So this isn't Jesus flying off the handle, all right? He's not getting angry like we get angry. This is, this is righteous anger. He's sitting down making this whip out of cords, probably ropes that from animals would be lying around, and he's weaving this whip. He's not happy in this moment. This is not meek and mild Jesus here. This is not the Jesus of veggie tales here, right? This is not the storybook Jesus with the white robe and the, the little blue beauty, sagent, beauty pageant sash going down the, the perfect wavy hair that we sometimes picture Jesus as. And, and yes, the most often description of Christ in the New Testament is gentle, meek. And if there are times where we see this Lamb of God is the Lion of Judah. Jesus brings harsh words down on the religious leaders of his time. You see the lion come out there. You see the lion unleashed here in the temple. And, and before we unpack the, why Jesus is so angry, like we just need to stop maybe, and, and I would say this, be thankful that we have a God who gets angry. I mean, that, that may sound weird. Like, no, I don't want an angry God. I want a really nice God. But understand, what, what normally makes us angry is what's different than what makes God angry. We get angry when our little kingdoms are messed up, right? We get angry when our, our kids don't go to bed right on time. We get angry when that person is driving in the passing lane and does not understand it. it's a passing lane. <laughs> but when you read God's word, but when we gather together as believers, how can we not look out over our sin-soaked world and not have some righteous anger well up in us? When you see the atrocities committed by Hamas on, on, on children and women and, and the elderly in Israel, I mean, it should make you angry. You should be glad that God would be angry against that kind of evil. When you realize that, do you, know, do you know that today there are more slaves in our world than there ever has been in the history of the world? That should make us angry. Well, when you hear about human trafficking and how, how it's fueled by a porn industry, that should make you angry. When, when you see people hurting and isolated and shunned and broken, it should stir something in you. And I'm so glad that we have a God who's not okay with sin. That we have a God who's not okay with people being oppressed. And so Jesus here, he's angry. Why, why? We see that, okay, selling the sacrifices can't be the problem because they were told to do that. Now, now some historians will say that what's going on here is what they're actually doing, not just selling sacrifices, they're taking advantage of people. There'd be these overpriced sheep because this is the only place to get sheep. It's, have you ever been in the airport and tried to buy a sandwich? Like, that's almost the price of my flight. Huh? Where else are you going to get a sandwich? Fork it over, right? And the, there could be a bit of that. Where it's inflated prices. There's evidence that there may have been corruption in that where you would come in with your lamb and the people there would say, sorry, not spotless. But tell you what I'll do. I'll buy the lamb off you at a majorly reduced rate. And then I'll sell you the spotless one at an overpriced rate. And then what would happen is they would say that they would take that lamb they just bought at this reduced rate, put it right into the same fold to sell to the next person as a spotless lamb. 
So there were money changers. That, that, that's not a bad thing. And that, that it, you, if you came in and you had coins from, from where you were around the world, you couldn't bring those into the temple because it would have had the picture of, of a, a leader on there. And that would have been, been a sin for them to do that, to have this icon. So you would have to, you would have to use temple money, all right? It's kind of like going to Chuck E. Cheese. You can't use your quarters. You got to get their tokens, right? And they're saying that maybe what they were doing was charging an exorbitant high rate of exchange. I mean, Jesus would have been angry at that kind of oppression. That, that could be it. People being abused. And, and some would say that's why Jesus is focused on the pigeon sellers because pigeon would be the, the type of sacrifice that the poorest of the poor would bring into the temple. But I wonder if there's also something else going on here. Notice where it's happening. This is all happening in the temple. See, see when, when God set out in Deuteronomy 13 to say, hey, you can do this, the way it was set up was that typically what it first started was at the, the valley, the Kidron Valley, right? The, the foot of the Mount of Olives. Before you go into Jerusalem, that's where you would buy your sacrifice. Then you would enter into Jerusalem and go up to the temple. But here, for the convenience of, of those who are worshiping, for, those, for, the, for the Jewish people going into the temple, for their convenience, they set it all up in the temple. And where do they set it up? In the outer part of the temple, which is what? It's called the court of the Gentiles. You see, in the temple, right at the very center, you've got this holy of holies where, where God's manifest presence, his glory would descend. And in that holy of holies, only the high priest once a year could go in there. The big veil to separate us from that. Outside of that, there'd be a court of priests where priests could go. You go further than that, you've got the court of men where all the Jewish men could go. Outside of that, you've got the court of women, right? And that's where all the young guys are like, that's where I'd be hanging out, right? No, that's, that's where everybody's allowed to go, right? If you're Jewish, that's where you can get to. Then outside of that, you've got this court of the Gentiles. That's where all this is happening. There's this one place where, where those who are outside of, of God's chosen people, outside of Israel, the Gentiles, this one place they could come and they say, we want to worship God. Now remember, God had created a people for himself and he'd said to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I'm gonna make you into a nation and out of your nation, the whole world will be blessed. That's the Gentiles. That the Gentiles would be blessed. And then here on Passover, here they are celebrating that they were set free from oppression to be able to worship God. And now what do they do? They crowd out the one place where the nations could come and worship. They make worship hard for everyone else place where a Gentile could come and lay their heart and their life before God. I mean, think of how impossible it would be to worship in what's going on there. I mean, we're, we're in a church service and a, a little baby does a little, Meh. and what do you do? You're like, what's going on? What's happening? A baby cries and we're distracted. Now imagine out in the foyer, it's full of sheep and oxen and pigeons and people selling and you're trying to worship and you're hearing people go, oh, that's too much for an ox. I'll give you this much. And all that cloud, there's no place to worship. As we look at what's going on there with the, the, the nations not being able to come close to the Lord, not being able to get into the place where they know there is life, maybe the question we should ask as we look at our own situation here is this, what tables would Jesus flip over today? Now listen, I understand we don't have a temple anymore. We have, we have a high priest that's Jesus and our, our sacrifices are not dead animals. Romans 12 says it's our lives that we bring. We present ourselves as living sacrifices. We, we don't have law written on tablets of stone. No, no, the, the spirit writes the law in our hearts now. 
But scripture says this too, that Jesus is the cornerstone. And on that cornerstone, he's building us together as what? As the temple of God. So we don't, we don't have a physical temple. This building's just a building. There's nothing sacred about this building, but when we gather together in worship and under the word, there is something happening. There is something sacred that, that gathered in worship. It's why it's important to, to not neglect, Hebrews would say, as some do, gathering together to worship because something special, something unique is happening in this moment. And so the question we ask would be this. Is this temple gathering of believers together as the church, do we have ways as a church that make it hard for the world to come and see Jesus? What are we cluttering up? What, what, what tables would you see? You gotta get this clutter out of the way here so that the world can see my glory and my grace. It was years ago, I was on a trip with my wife and another friend. We were actually just, we were whitewater kayaking down the East Coast, just stopping as many places as we could. We were sleeping in my car. We were just kind of, just dirt bagging it on the way down. But it was a Sunday morning. We thought, let's find a church. Now, you can imagine what you look like if you've just been kayaking a lot and sleeping in a car, right? So we kind of get our clothes as nice as we can, and we start walking towards the front door of the church. Now, as we're walking through the parking lot, and we're looking around, we start to realize, I think there's a dress code here, right? Like, there's some women here, I think they, like, they could literally leave the church and go churn butter right away. Like, that's the kind of, does it make sense? Okay, anyway, so we're walking in, and, and we get to the front door, and the usher at the front door, ushering everybody, good morning, good morning, good morning, to us, all of a sudden becomes a bouncer. He's like, can I help you guys? I'm like, ah, uh, we just want to come and go to church, okay? So we go in, another usher stops us on the way in, and I'm, I'm not even kidding you, they literally grab chairs from inside the, like the room they would be worshiping in. They grab chairs and they set them out in the foyer and said, you guys can sit here. Right on, that's a good reaction, thank you. Now here's the thing, I love Jesus, I'm running a Bible college at this time, like I, I'm, but imagine now, imagine, imagine me being an outsider coming in. Imagine somebody seeking. Now, that, that's a dramatic example, but I, I think it's important for us to think about our church here. It, it, do we have things we need to clear out? Anything that would hinder somebody from being able to seek the Lord at our church? My, my prayer be that anyone who walks in here would be fully, truly welcomed. The person who doesn't fit in, the, the, the person who, who comes in and they're standing off to the side, that we would see them, that we would say, this person is, is here to seek, but they, they don't feel like they're a part of it. Man, I want to welcome that person in. I want to show them love and care. Because like, here's the deal. This isn't a church. Jesus said this, you've made my father's house a marketplace. If we actually consider our gathering as coming into the Father's house, not the building, but the gathering, what do you do when someone comes into your home? You welcome them. I pray that we'd be a people who see each other, who, who see the outsider. When God told Abraham he's going to create a people, a nation, that that, that people would become the people where, where Jesus would come, would come as, listen, the true Israel is Jesus and that, that through Christ, Romans 11 says that we Gentiles, if you're a Gentile, that you've been grafted into the olive root. 
You've been grafted into this olive tree of Israel. Now, now God's chosen people now in Christ is not about a, a certain nation. It's all people, Jew or Gentile, who follow Jesus. And now, now this church, as this people that God promised to Abraham, that through Jesus and his people gathered, that there would be a blessing to the nations. That there'd be a blessing, listen, listen, to Huntsville and Muskoka through this church. That the outcast, the outsider, the fringe could come in here and listen, become family. That's what we're supposed to be. That's our calling as a church. And, and if you've been busted up and beaten by the world, if, if you come here busted up by the church, listen, that was not from the Heavenly Father. That was coming from religious people who are twisting God's system of worship to serve themselves. And I don't care what you've done or where you've come from, Jesus died for you. He wants you to be part of his family in this family. And I pray Jesus flip over any table that would make harvest a hard place for those seeking hope in the gospel. My prayer would be that God would raise up in our church not just a building full of consumers who want to come in on a Sunday and, and be entertained by a sermon and sing some songs that they'll probably complain about anyway and then, and then have a, a nice little Christian life and a nice little comfortable Canadian culture. Man, man I pray, God, would you, would you give us a family who flips over tables for the glory of God? You can clap for that. That's good. Let me ask you this, where are the dark places? Where are these places where you know that it's, it's difficult for those seeking the Lord? Where would he call us to go? I mean, for some of us, flipping tables is gonna be about finances. That we'd say, you know, I wanna, I wanna give this part up. I'm not gonna let this control of my money stop the mission from going out into dark places. I, here's what I love. I love this about our church, that, that Compassion International, Compassion Canada, loves Harvest Muskoka because you all support so many kids. That's some table flipping right there, right? Kids who have no access otherwise to food, water, shelter, love, care, and the gospel now are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's keep doing that. I, mean, I love what's going on with our youth. I mean, there are so many students, when, when you roll in here on a, on a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night, and, and there, are, there are, on a Wednesday, like a like hundred youth are in this room, students, and most of them, listen, a lot of them have no connection to a church anywhere. Why are they coming? Because tables have been moved out of the way for, for students who are like, man, I need to find a place where I know that I'm loved, where I know that I'm heard, where I can join a community, where it's a safe place to come. And listen, they're hearing the gospel every Tuesday night, every Wednesday night. Amen. Here's a challenge for us. As you go out from here, what, what kind of tables do we flip over? I, I was just reading a stat this week that over 80%, over 80% of those people who come to Christ who weren't raised in a Christian family, right? So talk about the, the ones on the outside now, right? That would be our Gentiles, right? Over 80% of those who come to Christ, here's how they did it. Because someone invited them to church. Over 80%. Here's the scary part. Less than 5% of Christians have invited somebody to church ever. Think about that. Maybe that's a table we need to start flipping over. Let's look at verse 17. We see some other tables that Jesus would, would flip over. Verse 17 says this. His disciples remembered what was, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
So they see Jesus come in here with this, this zeal about him, and they're like, wait a minute, this reminds us of a psalm, Psalm 69, a, a messianic psalm where it talks about David. He's running from his enemies. He has this desire to build the temple because he loves the Lord, and it's costing him. And David says to God, my zeal for your temple will consume me. What's it mean? It means my life will be consumed by it. Like, this is my everything. I'm fired up about this. But it's also saying this. David's saying, I'm going to die for this cause. This prophetic psalm pointing to Jesus who would literally give his life. I'm praying this. God, would you stir our hearts by your grace to have this kind of passion? And Jesus says this, this place of prayer has been turned into a marketplace. The Father's house has become a marketplace. I mean, we, we should have a zeal that, that goes beyond just the marketplace religion, that goes beyond the transactional kind of worship. Where Christianity becomes, well, I paid my dues. Christianity becomes, I checked off the boxes. You know, there's so many passages in Scripture in the Old Testament where God is saying you're missing the point. The, the whole point of the sacrificial system was not just to do the sacrifices. It's your heart. Hosea 6.6 6 says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I, I desire an acknowledgement of me more than burnt offerings. Isaiah 65, where God says, your sacrifices and burnt offerings, he goes, they're a stench in my nostrils. In Amos, God actually says, I hate your worship. I don't want to hear your songs anymore. Why? Because worship's not just transactional, where you come in and go, here's the animal, here's the money, thanks a lot, see you later. And you walk away satisfied, you've done the religious thing you're supposed to do, when in fact there should be this brokenness, where you recognize this animal in my place. My sin deserves death. But God in his grace puts it on this lamb. And there's a worship that happens in that moment. There's a, a celebration of grace that happens right there. And so, so we need to start asking ourselves, do I treat worship like a marketplace or is this really the Father's house? Where my heart's just so full of gratitude, where, where I, I see God's grace and I, I come to church to just rest in that grace, to celebrate that grace that... Listen, there are other ways that we can see where God will step in, where Jesus will, will bust out a whip and start flipping over tables. But, but put yourself in this story. Here's Jesus with a whip in his hand, yelling, dumping out money boxes, driving out oxen and livestock and sheep and tables being knocked over. You, you have Jesus stepping in, showing this ultimate authority. I mean, it's a supernatural thing going on here. John counts this as one of the signs of Jesus being the Messiah. I mean, think about it. He, th there would have been Jewish religious leaders who would have been controlling the crowds. There would have been Jewish temple guards who would have been there. There would have been Roman guards who would want to keep it with all these people coming into Jerusalem. The Romans who are in, in control of the state there, they would want to make sure there's no riots happening. And then yet you have this this carpenter from Nazareth with a rope whip drives everybody out? <clears throat> there is this supernatural power and authority on display here. You, you notice because they ask. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They say, well, what right do you have to do what you're doing? What authority do you have to do this? Now, now, we know Jesus' authority because he already said it earlier when he, when he called it, this is my father's house. 
I mean, think about that. If you come to my house for, for dinner and then you just start moving furniture and, and you start painting a room, like, what do you, what do you do? This isn't your house. You can't do that, right? But Jesus comes into the temple and he's like, this is my house. But, but more than that, look at verse 19. He explains it even further. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now that confuses them. Like that doesn't make sense. Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? Now, now when they said it took 46 years, it's actually longer than that because Solomon's temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian exile in 586 BC. They, they built a new one about 100 years later. It's so small, they actually weep about it. They're like, this is nothing compared to Solomon's temple. So then enrolls Herod in Jesus' time. And Herod's like, I want to win the favor of the people. So I want to restore the glory of the old temple. And he begins to build this huge, amazing temple. 46 years into the building project. I mean, we thought our renovations of this building went poorly. 46 years, right? Here's the thing. They were still 20 years away from finishing it. That's how huge this place is. But Jesus wasn't talking about the building, was he? In a way, he is saying this, that you're destroying this temple with, with empty worship, with greed. But what it all points to is this. We've been seeing this all through John. We'll see it continuing through John, that Jesus comes as, as the fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, that he is the true Israel. He is the true lamb, the true vine, the true king, the true priest, the true Sabbath. And here he's saying, listen, I am the true temple. He's angered by the exploitation of people, by the very system that was supposed to point them to their hope in their Savior. He's angered that the insiders don't make room for others that are coming. And he's going to do more than just cleanse the temple. He's going to replace the temple. And he says in Matthew 12, 6, Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here, meaning himself. We're going to see in a couple weeks in John chapter 4 where he meets this woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and he says to her, hey, believe me, the hour is coming, and, and when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, the hour is coming and is now here, he says, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, authentic worship no longer attached to Jerusalem or any other place. It will be in spirit and truth because it's going to be attached to Jesus. Look at verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus saying this, I am the new temple. When I raise my body from the dead, everywhere in all the world, people can come to God through me. Jesus, the new temple. Now think about what that means if Jesus is the temple. Well, what is a temple? What is it, a, a, a sanctuary, the, this place where you encounter God, where you're close in fellowship with him? You think all the way back in the beginning in Genesis, the Garden of Eden was really a temple. It was a sanctuary. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, but then Adam and Eve, us through them the same, decide... Mm, we'd like to actually just do things our own way. We actually don't trust that God's taking care of us and, and, and we, we only want to obey you where it fits for us. And so God kicks Adam and Eve out of the sanctuary. He puts an angel in front of the entrance of the Garden of Eden, of that temple, an angel with a sword to guard it. 
Now, by God's grace, he doesn't leave us. He, he, he builds another sanctuary in the Old Testament. First, it's a tabernacle in the wilderness, then a, a temple in the promised land. And in that temple, there is this huge veil, right, that, that stops you from going into the holy of holies. Do you know that on that veil was stitched the image of the Garden of Eden with an angel and a sword? Behind that veil, the Holy of Holies, where God's manifest glory, his presence was. No one could go behind that veil except the high priest once a year with a substitute, with a, a substitute that went under the sword. After Solomon's temple is destroyed, Ezekiel gives this prophecy in Ezekiel 40. And he says, someday there will be a final temple, a temple so great that the glory of the Lord will fill the whole temple and everyone will experience the glory of God. So the Israelites come back from exile and Ezra, we see in Ezra 3, they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And, and I said earlier, the people were like bummed out by the temple. It was so small. It wasn't like Solomon's temple. But, but part of the weeping in that moment was they're like, this can't be the fulfillment of what Ezekiel promised us. Like, where's the place where God's glory is all around? When can we finally get back into the garden? Where is this final temple? And then Jesus shows up in John chapter 2. And he's the lamb that goes under the sword for us. And he is the new temple where we get access to God. In Mark 15, when Jesus cries out, it is finished on the cross. The, the, the veil in the temple tears from top to bottom. And Jesus becomes our way to the Father. So with Jesus as the temple, what's it mean? It means this. We don't come to a system of worship in Christ, the temple is about knowing and loving and treasuring a person. That Jesus is our supreme treasure here. So we come to worship and we would say like David, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. A day with you, Christ. That we'd be in the presence of God under the blood of the lamb. That we'd be worshiping saying, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Jesus, the true temple, makes a way for us to be in relationship with a holy God. Brings us into a sanctuary, listen, for others to also come and experience the glory of God as we gather. Not only that, but now the Spirit of God takes up residence in our lives, in each of us, those who trust in Jesus. Now, because of Jesus, get this, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you think of that? Like the holy of holies in you. The spirit of God residing in you. So if we're gonna stay in this text here, what's that mean? It means there's another place where Jesus can flip over some tables. Look at verse 23. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When, he saw the signs, when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people people and needed no one to bear witness about really the heart of man for he himself knew what was in man so you got what's going on here jesus does this thing he does other signs and miracles and people are like we want to be with this guy he's got authority he's got power stuff we've never experienced before we want to follow him but jesus knows their hearts and 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 here's what they didn't have they they didn't come to him with a broken contrite heart people who are broken over their sin hungering and thirsting for righteousness believing that he is the passover lamb because years later jesus enters into jerusalem again at another week before passover and people are shouting hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and 7 days later as pilate stands him up beaten and bloodied before them they yell the same ones yell 
crucify him. Jesus saw it was in their hearts. In fact, I was thinking of another crowd that Jesus saw as he came into Jerusalem in Luke 19. He, he's healing people and he moves into Jerusalem. But, but again, Jesus doesn't entrust himself to these huge crowds. But as he's walking in these crowds, he looks up and he sees a dude in a sycamore tree. And he says, hey, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to your house to have dinner with you today. Which means this, I'm, I'm coming to have a relationship with you. I mean, Jesus knew the hearts of the crowd and he knew the heart of Zacchaeus. He knew who was hard-hearted. He knew who was playing games. He, he knew who wanted the perks of being friends with the Messiah but, but didn't actually want the Messiah. And yet he also knew the ones like Zacchaeus who were so desperate, sick of their sins, so tired, who longed to be saved by grace through faith, who, who longed for a glimpse that maybe, maybe Jesus can deliver us from ourselves. And he says, Zacchaeus, let's go. He saw in the heart of Zacchaeus one who longed for Jesus. And he says, I'll entrust myself to this guy. Jesus didn't care he was a tax collector. And Zacchaeus was transformed. He gives away half of his stuff. His whole life changes. Why? Because the grace of Jesus, listen, will flip over tables in our hearts, in our lives. Repentance will be on display. Our lives totally change. If you've met Jesus, I believe it's a promise of Christ himself. If Jesus comes into your life, your life will be changed. So as the worship team comes up, as we end off this morning, maybe here's the question we can ask ourselves. Am I the crowd or am I Zacchaeus? We sang before the message, we sang a song that said, shake up the ground of all my tradition, break down the walls of all my religions. So let me ask you this question that only you know the answer to. What does Jesus need to flip over in your temple? Jesus has shown himself in this text that he is the Lord of the temple. That he can rearrange your life that he's calling you to this life of adventure, of submission, and, and, and living with him as the authority. So let me ask, where does it need to begin in your heart this morning? Maybe for you, it's a, a table of bitterness and unforgiveness that Jesus says, let me just flip that over. Let's, let me drive that out of here. It's a distraction to your heart of worship. Maybe for you, it's, it's fear and anxiety. And Jesus is saying, let, let me drive that out of here. Let me show you who I am. Maybe it's a heart that's cold or apathetic. I mean, David said, zeal for your house will consume me. Like, I'm not gonna take a back seat on this. I'm gonna fervently worship you. Like, in, in David's eyes, God's grace was too big to be quiet about it. Maybe that's some tables that are being flipped over. Lord, that I'd have a passion about my life. That worship wouldn't just be going through the motions. That my life would not just be check boxes. Maybe for you it's a, <clears throat> a lack of mission. Right? Yeah, I don't know if I ever share the good news of Christ. And Jesus, let me clear that fear out. Let me clear that out so you can be a person who, who is who's so used by me, God would say that, that you're inviting others into the hope of the gospel. Or maybe for you this morning, you're just plain wore out. You're worn out by the world, 
You're worn out by the weight of religion and trying to measure up. And Jesus has stepped in with, with, listen, anger against the sin and the burden that's on you. And he says, come find rest. And he drives out the lies. Maybe for you this morning, it's about new life. You say, I've never actually come to Christ. So you stand with me? We're, we're going to sing. <clears throat> but as we sing, I don't want it to just be a check mark of we end each service with a worship song. But maybe this morning, maybe there's something different that God wants to do. Maybe it begins with you. Maybe it's not just a time where you go, how many verses do we sing before I'm out the door? But instead, you're saying, Lord, what do you want me to do with this worship? Maybe for you, it's a matter of you need to come up front, get on your knees, because you're like, Lord, I I have a zeal for this, that I don't care what people think. I want to display it. Maybe it's right where you are. There's something that needs to happen in your heart. Maybe somebody you need to grab. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I do pray. I'm so thankful for your grace. I'm thankful that even in this, Lord, even as we lean in to say, Jesus, would you flip over some tables and we can recognize that it's not us striving for something, but it's us saying, I surrender. And that while you have a wrath against sin, that your grace means that you say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you for it's light. Thank you that you will not snuff out a smoldering wick or break off a bruised reed, but God, that those who are here this morning who have been beaten and broken by the world, by religion, that you would say, I've come to bring you life. So God, would you you provide that for us this morning, even as we sing? Would you clean house where it needs to be cleaned out? I pray this in Jesus' name.